Welcome to Healthcare Inspired, the podcast that bridges the gap between clinical expertise and business innovation, all with a single purpose, improving patient care. Get ready to be inspired as we bring you thought-provoking discussions, captivating stories, and groundbreaking insights from leading experts in healthcare. Join your host, Jennifer McNamara, on a journey of discovery as she connects the dots, revealing the synergies between clinical and business teams. Each episode, we'll delve into the latest healthcare trends, uncover innovative solutions, and share success stories that will motivate and ignite change. So get ready to embark on a path of inspiration, knowledge, and transformation. Here is your host, Jennifer McNamara. Welcome to the Healthcare Inspired Podcast. I am your host, Jennifer McNamara, and I am happy to be here once again to discuss the business of healthcare and what we have going on. Now, going forward, like I mentioned, we're going to have some amazing guests on the show. And today we have our very first guest of the show, Maya Turner. Maya, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. I am so happy that you're here, Maya. And it's kind of funny, you know, we've met in person recently at HealthCon 2023 in Nashville. So that was a really fun, so fun, right? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it, yeah, it was so much information. I had such a great time. It, HealthCon was amazing. I, I was overwhelmed. Um, I had the privilege of being there for the first time and speaking for the first time. And it's just as amazing on both sides as an attendee and as a speaker. It really is. You learn a lot about yourself as a speaker, first of all, and then you you learn a lot from others, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And the networking uh, possibilities are endless. And, you know, you get to meet people like yourself. And uh, I was so drawn by, by your charisma and everything that you have going on as far as the healthcare is concerned. And I really felt a connection and I really just wanted to participate in the business of healthcare because it's so valuable in today's society on both the patient end as well as the business of it from the physician's end. So it's really good to be a part of this. Well, I'm so happy that you feel the same way I do about healthcare. Um, And, you know, I think for so long, there's been this separation of the two and we really um, don't, we just don't talk about it, right? We don't talk about the fact that the business side is so important because it helps the patient side, the clinical side, keep, keep running. Right. Um, Oh my gosh. Exactly. So, I mean, there's so much we can talk about, right? And we are going to spend, guys, hey, audience, we're going to spend a few episodes with Maya. So I'm excited that she's going to be my my special guest for a few episodes because we are going to break apart this concept of denials. And we're going to start with this first episode on the front end denials. So today we're going to talk about the topic, the impact of front end denials on the healthcare revenue cycle. So we have a lot to unpack here. Uh, so let's get started. Now, I want to ask you, Maya, just from your uh, understanding, you've been in healthcare a long time. Can you explain how long you've been in healthcare, by the way? Let, let's let's dig into that. I don't want to tell my age, but I've been in healthcare for about 30 years. I've worked in the insurance side. I've worked in dental. I worked in medical. I've been an adjudicator. I've been now I'm in uh, coding compliance. So I've kind of seen everything from the front end to the back end. And it's so important to understand all elements of that process, because if you don't, you really miss out on connecting the dots because you don't understand the why. So I'm I'm really happy to kind of break this down. And being someone who's been in a field for so long, 
it's really important to understand all aspects, um, beginning from the front. Exactly. Um, so let's talk about front end denials, as we call them. Can you explain what front end denials are and how they affect the revenue cycle? I want to get your take on that. It really normally deals with some uh, logistics about getting uh, information from the patient, um, verifying insurance coverage, um, getting copies of cards, uh, the validity of the care that's provided, and um, how it's going to get paid um, once the information is collected and the service has been performed. Exactly. And there are so many things that can go wrong from a revenue aspect when we don't collect the right information. Um, off the top of my head, one of the big issues that I just remember from working in the office every day was a lot of times the patients don't know certain things about about their their card, right? No, they don't. One of the big things I remember was the Medicare uh, issue we had, right? Where the patient says, here's my Medicare card. And if you're not checking eligibility ahead of time, which of course you should be doing at least two days before the appointment, if possible, you're not going to know that, hey, they have Medicare, yes, but they have a replacement plan. They have a Part C plan. So that is a different scenario and different benefits are going to be applied in certain scenarios, maybe a copay. Um, yeah, to collect the copay, uh, that's part of the contract. So those are some of the things that we see. Quick front-end denials or just rejections can happen. Now, there's a difference between a denial and a rejection. Go ahead and explain to me what a rejection is, first of all. A rejection could be for many reasons. Typically, a rejection just means that the information is incorrect up front. It's not a complete denial. A denial of coverage is just a refusal to pay, which can be appealed. But a rejection is just that the information is incorrect, uh, something needs to be verified, or there's just... Um, some information that's needed on the insurance and for them to adjudicate the claim. Exactly. And we don't obviously want either of those things to happen. Um, so it would be uh, on the part of those in the clinic to really provide that training to their staff. So you first have to understand what are the common causes of these front end denials? I think if you're going to tackle this problem that you face in your clinic, it would make sense to first understand what the types of denials, the common denials you might encounter are, so that you can really figure out what the best approach is for your particular uh, facility. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that are common causes is lack of, cult first of all, is culture, training, and value. And what I mean by that is if the culture of the office is really nonchalant, then there's no level of integrity to pursue viable information once collected by the front-end staff or the provider service reps. And then the training. Typically, training needs to be multidimensional so they understand the why behind um, what happens if the information is incorrect. But it also is valuable for them to understand that they create the value once the patient comes in the office, whether they don't smile or if they have a bad experience, the patient is not going to return. So the provider service reps in question really are the, um, the face of the office, the face of the practice, and really the face of the revenue, if you really want to break this down. Their training, their face, their information that they input creates revenue. Exactly. And some of the common ones that I have seen over the years that still seem to be an issue that really I feel are unnecessary uh, or can be mitigated, um, again, on the front end before the claim goes out, 
um, before information gets entered incorrectly, uh, that can, you know, that can limit the amount of money or a payment at all coming in. Eligibility issues. Um, it just takes, in the state of Arkansas, um, the portal we use to check benefits, it was great because it told you or if the patient was eligible, first of all, it also told you things you need to know, like the PCP, the primary care physician, who that was, um, if it was required, yes. which a lot of times they do. If a referral is required, it gives you other information, such as the copay that's needed, right? Um, if they're in or out of network, which is crucial. And later on um, in this series of, of episodes, we are going to talk about um, the impact of denials when it comes to in out of network benefits. So we'll talk about that in a later episode. But it is also one of the things that we face is the issue of, you know, how the patient's affected when they have an in, a, in and out of network benefit. So we'll talk about that. Let's talk about duplicate claims. It happens so often. And I think there's a level of education understanding, not only in how a claim is processed, but also understanding how your EMR is set up, that it can really cause this problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, duplicate claims. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of times what happens is, and it also is dependent upon the EMR system overall and the EMR system and the um uh, the revenue cycle system um, is on the same um, type because a lot of times Epic has both um, the EMR and then they have the the billing side. But a lot of times there are just EMR systems and then the revenue cycle system is a completely different system. So when you're dealing with two different things, you can't see or match the data service for the certain things that are happening. So you might have a Medicare visit on one day and then that may, may they may want to perform a sick visit on the same day. But if there are duplicate claims or duplicate dates of service, it's going to kick out because someone didn't take the time to match the two. And as far as details is concerned, it makes a huge difference on how those claims go out and um, who's reviewing them once the error is made. And understanding duplicate claims is is kind of different for, for different uh, systems. And the way that you mark the the way you mark the claim, you know, you don't want it to, you may have to make a change, which we know that sometimes you're going to get um, a situation where we we make a imperfect mistake with a claim. We're not perfect, but if we don't send it back out the right way, they're going to say, oh, well, there's no way they could have seen the patient twice in one day. This is a duplicate. We're going to deny it because they weren't notified in the right way. It was actually a correction to a claim. Then, then now they think, they think we're trying to get it twice <laughs> and they're not going to fall for that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, I realize that a lot of practices are, um, you know, shorthanded these days and they're having difficulty uh, keeping up with all of the claims and all the, the things they have to do on a daily basis. So sometimes they face what we call timely filing. So if you could shed some light on this for us a little bit about what are some of the things we should know about timely filing. Timely filing is a timer that is utilized for the provider to submit a claim for it to be valuable, one, and two, within the contracted time amount for that patient's particular health plan. Um, for commercial play payers, it could be one amount. For um, uh, government payers, it could be another amount. For managed care payers, it could be uh, amount. Some of them could be 90 days. Some of them can be six months. Some of them can be a year. Medicare is a year. 
Some Medicaid policies is 180 days. Um, so it really depends. But if you don't submit that information within that time that is marked for um, those claims to be valid for them to adjudicate them once it's correct, um, then you could possibly lose out on that money without getting any chance of payment. And that is a common denial because there is lack of knowledge of when that timely filing is. So basically, timely filing is a timer of when that claim could be submitted and paid. And I know uh, there were some payers during the PHE, the public health emergency, that were kind of being a little bit lenient on some of these things, but we are past that now. So we're now back to the good old days where we have to actually get organized and we have to make these these decisions ahead of time. We need to understand our payer mix, as we call it. So what that means for those of you out there, if you're not familiar with that term, your payer mix is the payers that you have in the mix of your practice. So things that payers that you actually submit claims to. And if you're listening out there and you're a patient, it is technically, yes, your responsibility to understand your policy, your coverage. But we also understand it's a lot to take in, a lot to understand. So at medical practices, it is, of course, good for them to understand for you on your behalf so that they can help you kind of navigate this, this crazy world of insurance coverage. And for those offices that have those individuals understand these things, they're the ones that are going to be able to help you um, kind of navigate this maze, so to speak. Yes. And uh, that's what we do here at Healthcare Inspired. We try to help medical practices, such as the one you you might go to as a patient. And if you work at a medical practice and you're trying to improve your skills and try to improve your understanding of these elements... That's what we're here to help you with today. We're here to help you navigate this maze. And, you know, we're going to talk about um, some other things that we see um, kind of on the the front end. There's medical necessity issues. There's coordination of benefits. Let's talk about that one for a second because COB issues, as we call them. Yes. This is where the patient has has multiple insurance coverages, right? And it, it happens to a lot of us. Sometimes we are having, we have Medicare and we have a supplement. That's one instance of that. Other times we have a spouse who has coverage at their job and we have coverage at our job and they come together. What happens if they don't know about each other? We have an issue. Uh, So Maya, if you could tell us kind of a synopsis here of kind of break down the COB for us and why it's important and what we need to know about it. Coordination of benefits is really a concept when there's, like you said, more more than one coverage Um, and understanding who is a second payer, who is the primary payer. Um, There are ways to determine that, but one, you have to know when they both exist, right? And I think one of the bigger things is the why, the why about the coverage. How are they retired? Are they working? Um, Is it a, uh, what type of plan it is? Um, Is it a liability? Is it a motor vehicle accident? Um, All of those things make a difference on who to submit the insurance claim to, who's going to pay, and the amount that the patient would be required to pay if anything. So um, understanding how the coordination of benefits works and the amount of pay that's required um, and or how it's determined of who would be primary and be secondary, it would definitely make a difference on how and what that claim is going to be um, determined as once the payment is um, uh, eligible to be paid. Um, I find in my experience that a lot of times 
PSRs don't even understand coordination of benefits. They don't understand what's primary. They don't understand what's secondary. Um, if they follow the birthday rule, which is another way. Um, some payers go by divorce decree. Um, some payers go by um, several different things. Some it could be the year, some could be the month and day. But all of those things make a difference on primary care coverage, um, specifically uh, Medicare. Medicare um, is always the secondary payer when it comes to certain types of accidents, third-party liabilities. So understanding all of that definitely makes a difference. And again, training your staff to understand that is going to make a difference. Exactly. I know a lot of times I have seen inadvertent mistakes where they have put Medicaid as the primary payer. Absolutely. Yes, they have. <laughs> it's, it's, yes, yeah, it is what it is. You know, it's an easy click of the button. And I know there was one EMR I worked in where you could actually drag the primary and secondary payers, um, you know, kind of above and below each other. So it made it easy to fix, yes. which was great, a great little tech tool. Um, but sometimes it can be a complicated process in some systems to kind of move that stuff around. And so it can be like a time consuming process, but ultimately it is important because the payments will not come in correctly, especially if you have ERA set up. So you have a electronic remittance advice coming in where it's not a paper check, it's electronic, right? And sometimes if you have, when you have ERAs like um, Medicare and Blue Cross and Blue Shield, sometimes if you don't understand um, the reason codes. Um, for those denials, it definitely makes a difference. And, and if you don't understand those and uh, the coordination of benefits and um, how um, understanding the front end edits versus the back end edits and the front end denials versus back end denials and those reason codes and taking time to understand what they are, it's going to make a difference in how those claims can be recovered. I can't tell you how many times where I've seen electronic remittance advices and people didn't know how to read them and so that money was just left on the table and it just drove me insane. So I totally understand that and uh, understanding what the codes mean and what you need to do after you see them is also a big difference. Yes. And today I want to do something kind of special because I know I have some listeners who are not in healthcare. So let's say, for instance, you are a patient, right? And you get a letter in the mail from your insurance company. Now, most of the time, that's who it's coming from. Your provider's office, your physician's office, they're going to get the same thing, but it's going to look a little bit different to them. It's going to have it's going to have different information on it. Now, as a patient, you're going to be told what to pay your provider. It's going to break down for you. This is what you had done. This is how much um, was it was accepted by the insurance. This is how much was not accepted. Your physician gets paid this amount, and then you have to pay the difference. That's basic information that they're get, they're giving you as a patient. But on the other side, your physician's office is getting a little more information. So they do know why it was denied. And you're going to get some level of that on your explanation of benefits. So it's really important that you know and you're educated as to what is truly your responsibility, especially if there was a certain denial, a certain issue that they are not supposed to put out to you as the patient. And I'm going to tell you, Maya, I have had so many issues with this. I've had friends of mine and my family members come to me saying, why do I owe this? I don't understand. And sometimes it is true. Someone clicked a button and didn't really pay attention, put it out to the patient, and it was not their responsibility. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think when you're talking about that, that's really um, when you talk about contractual allow allowances and what is max that uh, can be uh, built to the patient. 
And a lot of times they don't do the adjustments and they try to put it off on the patient when it's really over contractual allowances, which is what goes above and beyond of what the actual insurance is going to pay. That provider should adjust off whatever it is and then shoot the third party liability, which would be the patient's liability for whatever that difference is. For example, if um, a bill was um, uh, submitted to the insurance company, the total amount was $1,000. After that amount of $1,000 was considered, the insurance company is only going to allow, uh, let's say, $800. So when that EOB comes back, that explanation of benefits comes back, the difference that should be adjusted off by the provider's office is $200. And then whatever copay is um, required of that patient, they pay that copay and the insurance company is going to get 90% of $800 or whatever that is. And then um, it goes off on their merry way. But like you said, um, if you don't know how to apply an EOB or if you don't know how to apply or even look at an EOB, which is a huge difference, I won't even go there, but that can make the difference on how much you are expected to pay versus what your provider is sending you a bill for. Exactly. So one of the things that I wanted to uh, point out uh, when it comes to some of the denials we get. Now, I know we're here to talk about front-end denials, but one of the denials that I wanted to cover today is modifier-related. Um, because one of the things that you do see, if you have your edit set up correctly, which is another thing we mentioned earlier, right? We mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. I know we're laughing about it, but it's so true. I get so many calls from people. They're like, why is my EMR system not, not notifying me? Because maybe they work somewhere else where it was set up correctly. And then they, they move somewhere to their facility and it's not set up correctly. And I think there's this misconception that all EMR and all practice management systems are all created equal. They all have this built in. No, they're not. Like it's supposed to be there, right? It's supposed to always be in there. And it's not. It's it's crazy. I worked with an EMR system that was, it was connected to the, the PM. So it was one system. And basically we we're I was looking for it because I was like, well, why isn't this they were we were told that it would be set up, but they didn't tell us that we had to manually set it up, but they would help us do it. So it was like, and then another system I was in, it was automatically, it had all those things built in. Now, a lot of them do have certain codes in their kit. We call kit codes sometimes that actually will warn you about certain things. They're already built in because someone has taken the time to build their software that way. Other companies make it where they tell you how to do it. And then it's just so convoluted and it's complicated to do. So sometimes you may need someone with actual knowledge of these things to come in, set it up for you, which of course we do at Healthcare Inspired LLC. So one of the things I want to talk about was how we can educate practices on how to improve in their organizational processes to improve some of the things that we just talked about here today. The first thing I was thinking of was improving just the patient registration process. Um, what are some of the things you can think of that can really help practices improve that process? I think one of the things is you have to create a culture of integrity uh, for great service and minimal errors um, to understand that if they're the face of the business, that means that they're the first person that everyone sees. So I think that is the first thing. And then them, the front end or the uh, provider service reps, understanding the why. 
Why is the patient there? If it doesn't, um, if there is no coverage, um, what needs to happen, right? And then the, the third thing is to make sure that they understand that if it's wrong on the front end, it could affect the payment and in turn affect their pay because if the provider doesn't get paid, it affects them because he pays the staff. So I think it makes a huge difference in how all of that uh, works and um, creating a culture of that, of making sure that things are correct the first time and um, having a workflow in that process, understanding what the workflow is. Um, is um, the patient going to call to make an appointment after the appointment is made? Is it going to an insurance verifier? Who's verifying the insurance? And then double checking that information that um, was given once the card is provided, um, once the patient arrives at the office. All of those things make a huge difference on the outcome of the payment. 100%. Thank you so much, Maya, for joining the show today. Oh, uh, it was a pleasure. You know, dealing with uh, front end denials is always um, something that is a hot topic. And uh, I'm glad to uh, be a part of it. And I'm looking forward to more conversations because it's definitely something that needs to be more explored because I don't think everyone understands how much the front end affects the back end. So um, more to come on that for sure. What a wonderful show we had with Maya. Wasn't she great? Well, we have a new segment on the show we're going to get started with, and we hope you enjoy it. So here it comes, a modifier mix-up. Modifier Mix-Up. Modifier Mix-Up. I'm so glad we've added this segment to the episode today. So I hope you enjoy our first modifier we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about persistent challenges that we see in medical practices for Modifier 59. 59 is a really important modifier uh, really to indicate that our procedure we're performing is distinct or independent, right, from other services or procedures performed the same day. And oftentimes, our insurance company will identify that two procedures normally aren't billed together, but in certain situations, they're appropriate by attaching this modifier. And our CPT codebook, of course, published by the American Medical Association, identifies Modify 59, common reasons why we can use it, right? Things such as a separate site, right? A separate incision, a separate lesion, so on. Separate physician, separate encounter that same day. So many reasons we can use it, right? We want to make sure we're using it appropriately because it can also hurt us, especially when we're audited. Now, back in the year 2005, we might remember this, when the Office of Inspector General conducted an audit that focused on the inappropriate use of this modifier, they found that many medical practices were misusing this modifier. Again, maybe sometimes to obtain higher reimbursement, which often is the case, right? You perform these procedures, you want to get paid for the work you're doing. So you often think, okay, well, there's two codes to describe this. Um, so here's one, here's the other. I'm going to build them both. But we don't realize is that the insurance company has identified that in a given situation by performing these together, they're going to say, okay, well, this procedure, we're going to bundle this or include the work of this procedure when done at the same time as this procedure, right? Whatever is the, the primary procedure, according to them, they're going to pay, it pays more usually, right? And so that procedure is going to be the main procedure we bill, and they're going to include the work of that other service in that whenever they bundle them routinely, that's what they do. Now they do allow for separate payment in certain circumstances, like I said, but again, we're trying to identify, is it truly separate 
Do we have a clear reason as identified by the, the payer, right? By the insurance, they've identified in these situations, we're going to pay you more, but you have to follow the rules. And by misusing it, it has raised a lot of concerns about the integrity of our practices, our billing practices. Are we routinely showing that we don't understand the policy? And despite the OIG's attempts, Medicare's attempts, all these different payers' attempts to guide us in our practices on the proper use, we're still abusing it. And there's just so much misinformation out there. Now, maybe you remember back in 2015 when we had the update, right, where they had the additional subset of modifiers being added to identify further the proper use of modifier 59. And I'm sure you're aware that there is an updated document from Medicare, from CMS, discussing the proper use of 59 and also the X modifiers. Um, it was uh, dated and effective and updated as of March of this year. So it's a good idea to always check these documents. Medicare has wonderful documents on the global package and also, of course, modifiers. So the update or the recent revision of this effective March of 23 is helpful because it kind of helps understand not only the modifiers themselves, what their what their meaning is, but also um, how they're processed, right? A lot of people, I think, forget to actually look at the Medicare physician fee schedule and look at those indicators. And like I mentioned before, that document will tell you whether or not a modifier can be applied. And so it's either going to be 59 or in some instances, if your payer wants those subset of modifiers that further describe why you're using 59, that's appropriate. So when they created these modifiers, they created a subset, right, uh, for the XE, separate encounter, XS, separate structure, XP, separate practitioner or physician, right, provider, XU, unusual non-overlapping service. So again, we have questions, right? And so I encourage you to identify if some of the questions you've had are, are in the FAQ document given out by Medicare. But one of the big things I think we often do is we apply that separate structure, the XS, to almost everything. Oh, it's a separate site, separate body part, separate organ, separate lesion. And oftentimes, yes, it is considered separate, but it does indicate a separate structure or separate uh, organ, right? And sometimes we have separate lesions on the same organ, but it is considered right appropriate to identify that as a separate lesion because modifier 59 allows for us to code that as separate when it's a separate lesion. So in our situations such as the identification of a non-contiguous lesion in a different anatomic region of the same organ. So at our colon, for instance, we have maybe a polyp removed from one part of the, of the colon and then another from the other. They give you that as an example when to use XS in the appropriate use of this. So they tell you the very first FAQ question is using these appropriately would be encountered in that situation, a different organ, a different anatomic region, or in limited situations, non-contiguous lesions they're not touching right non-contiguous in different anatomic regions of the same organ that's an example of that so xs would be appropriate when you're billing 45380 for instance with the 45385 those two codes are bundled according to cpt from the american medical association and so by identifying that as appropriate we add the xs modifier but again, as we mentioned, same rule applies. We don't want to apply this if another modifier is more appropriate and they do identify that. 
there are times where we can identify the specificity of these distinct procedures by using a different modifier where 59 is not appropriate. And we still don't want to apply 59 just because we have two procedures on the same claim. Oftentimes we see that and it's a red flag. It's not even necessary. And there were actual claims that were identified in that original audit I mentioned from CMS uh, or in the OIG that CMS was looking at when they saw that they were applying this modifier when it wasn't appropriate, it didn't even need it. And what that does, it puts up a red flag that you have inconsistent billing practices, that you don't understand the process of billing these, these codes together. And then they're going to, of course, see a red flag. What else do you not understand? So they're going to look at some more things in your practice. They're going to pull some, some charts, other things they're going to look at. So we don't want to invite that to happen. We want to make sure we're also thinking about the inappropriate use when it's not necessary and we're still going to get paid for both procedures, but we don't need the modifier. So we want to be careful of that. So I encourage you to take a look at these additional subset modifiers in that document. We'll have a copy of that in our show notes. So take a look at that. And we hope you, of course, um, can find further clarification for these modifiers in your practice. Remember, just because it says attach a modifier, to this code to get it to pay does not give us a blank check to override that rule and unbundle those services. We have to have a valid reason. It needs to also be supported by documentation. So again, not a blank check. We apply it only if we have documentation to support one of those reasons. Now, many practices still struggle with this as we talked about. So why is that? Well, there's complexity of these coding and billing regulations that just overwhelm practices. Maybe yours is one of those that you just feel overwhelmed by all the rules, right, in your specialty. And the governing rules around this can be so intricate and it's always updated. And so keeping up with these changes can be challenging for coders, billers, practice managers, especially physicians, right, when they want to understand why they can't get paid for both services. And we have to understand the way to describe that to a physician. It's really important to let them know you are getting paid for the work you're doing. This is just how we're doing it. Now, there may be indications where maybe a better um, documentation could have been employed, where clearer wording could I have identified the actual indication that you did perform a clear reason to apply 59, but maybe it wasn't documented efficiently to where the payer is going to accept it. So again, that's also the issue is that sometimes a true understanding of what needs to be documented, it was occurring, it did happen, but it wasn't clear enough. Sometimes, you know, our physicians get overwhelmed with documentation, they get busy and they just kind of sometimes rush through it and don't realize they've actually hurt themselves by not documenting appropriately. A lot of us out there have felt the pressure. I know a lot of our admins out there, you know, not to say all of them, but a lot of them I've, I've worked with, they feel pressure. They're being told to just get the charges out, whatever you have to do. And sometimes they've been led to believe that they can just put a modifier on there to get more reimbursement without actually understanding its purpose. And maybe you feel compelled to do that because you know you get more money and your physician says do it or your uh, someone above you says just do it, right? And no thought has been given to the implications, uh, regulatory implications, and how it can affect you down the road. So to address these challenges, it's important to invest in ongoing education for your coding and billing staff, but also for your physicians and also for your practice managers. So we all need to be educated on this. So in order to provide that education, we do encourage you to attend our upcoming practice management symposium on October 5th. 
really going to highlight some of those areas that as a practice manager, you can identify and really train your staff appropriately. Being proactive in addressing these issues can correct any improper coding practices we may have had and ensure compliance with our regulatory requirements. So yes, Modifier 59 should be used when appropriate. We don't want to shy away from it, but we know that its misuse can really, really hurt us uh, in the long run if we're not careful. Well, thank you for uh, attending today's episode. Uh, We're so excited to keep bringing you more content. We want to thank, of course, our wonderful guest, Maya Turner. Thank you for joining us on the show, Maya. And we look forward to more information from you in the future. So thanks again. And we hope all of you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode as we come back and talk more about, of course, revenue cycle, understanding our denials. And specifically, our next episode will discuss those in-network and out-of-network denials that we get and how to understand them. So stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks again to our wonderful podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highly Productions. Until next time. Are you a physician looking to streamline your credentialing process? Look no further. Healthcare Inspired LLC has got you covered. Time is valuable, and they understand that navigating the world of insurance credentialing can be a daunting task. But worry not. Healthcare Inspired LLC specializes in making the process seamless and hassle-free. With their team of experienced professionals, they handle everything from application submission to provider enrollment, ensuring you get credentialed with multiple insurance plans efficiently. Save time and energy so you can focus on what truly matters providing exceptional care to your patients. So why wait? Visit www.healthcareinspiredllc.com today to learn more and schedule a consultation with their team. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Healthcare Inspired. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and tell us what you thought of the show. To learn more about Jennifer McNamara and her team at Healthcare Inspired, including how to hire their exceptional data team, visit www.healthcareinspiredllc.com. Thank you once again for joining us on this journey of inspiration and transformation. Together, let's shape the future of patient care. Healthcare Inspired is brought to you by Healthcare Inspired LLC. The show is produced by Highland Productions. Our executive producer is Jennifer McNamara. All music is composed by Gabriel Fast.